One of the most feared battleships in World War II was the German ship, the Bismarck. If you know World War II history, they called this ship the Terror of the Seas. The Royal Navy of Britain did not want to see the Bismarck. It was the largest ship ever made as a destroyer. It was equipped with more weapons than any other ship. It had 50, it made up 52,000 tons of weight. It held 2,200 men. It was over about 300 yards long. And it was equipped with eight different 15-inch cannons. It had seven decks above board and seven decks below board. And you would think for a ship like that that was massive, that it would be slow. But if you believe that, you don't know German engineering. <laughs> it was the fastest ship in the sea. It was like the Black Pearl. And the Royal Army of England feared it. Most of the work that the Bismarck did, though, was taking out supply lines for the British ships in 1940 and 1941. And yet they began to use it for battle. There was a British spy plane that spotted it one day in 1941, in May of 1941, and they sent the fleet of British ships to attack it. And very soon, the Bismarck turned and it took out the big battleship, the Hooks. And then it took off. And it escaped, so the British thought. A couple days later, the British came upon it, though. And they noticed something really strange, this grand, massive, equipped with incredible weapons and fast battleship. First, they caught up to it, and they didn't know why. And then they noticed it began to zigzag. It was going in this weird motion. And then it turned around and came toward them. And shocked, the British fleet destroyed it. But they didn't know what happened, and later what they learned is this. When the German massive battleship struck the Hooks battleship, the British had these little biplanes that they would run, and they could identify battleships, but they also had little torpedoes on them. And one of, these little battles, one of these little biplanes had shot a torpedo and it caught the rudder of the Bismarck. And for a few days, the Bismarck was motioning through the waters and zigzagging through the waters. The point is this. You can have the best engineering in the world. You can have the most speed, the most power in the world. But if you don't have the ability to navigate you're in trouble. You're at the mercy of the sea. That's what happened to the Bismarck. As we come today to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon reminds us this morning of how to navigate life under the sun so that we're not caught at the mercy of the sea. See, left to ourselves Life under the sun, the broken world that we live in, left to ourselves, we are ships without a rudder. Left to ourselves, 
we think that the temporal pursuits and satisfactions that we pursue in life will bring meaning and satisfaction to our life. So let me ask you this question this morning. What's your rudder? What brings direction to your life? How do you navigate life? What's your rudder? See, we know what Solomon's been saying to the people of God as he's gathered, chapter one, he gathered the people of God, he gathered the assembly together as the wise old sage who had tried it all. He had tried everything under the sun to be satisfied. He had tried labor and learning, possessions and pleasure. He tried it all and nothing satisfied and he came to the conclusion that you've been hearing all the way through this book. Maybe you're tired of it. All is vanity. All is smoke. You see it and it's gone. But we come today again to another pointer that points us back. Solomon, the wisest man on the planet, is going to point us back to the rudder of God's word. Because the rudder points us toward God that we might know him and follow him, which brings meaning to life. So turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and we'll be in verses 9 through 14, five verses today, and we'll finish up this book this morning. Three things about God's word, three things about the rudder. Let me just read it with us. Page 559, if you've got a Bible, if you need a Bible next to you. He says this, end of the book. God's word says this, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and upright he wrote the words of truth. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, what in the world is that? And like nails firmly fixed, and the collected sayings, they are given by the one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh, verse 13. The end of the matter is this. All has been heard. That's the rest of the book. His pursuit, Solomon being this lab rat of, rat of observing all things. Here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Look back at verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10 teach us this, and I'll unpack it. The faithful preacher, that's Solomon, the faithful preacher teaches and illumines God's word to God's people. Do you see that? He's kind of looking at himself. He turns back and says what he's been doing in the book of Ecclesiastes the whole time. He's gathered the church. He's gathered, excuse me, the people of God in the Old Testament to listen to the wisdom of God. And this is what he's been doing for 11 chapters. And he says he does what? What does a faithful preacher do? He teaches. He gives the people of God the knowledge of God. He gives them biblical truth. But look at what else. Look at the attention he shows here. He says he taught it, but he weighed it. He studied it. He arranged many proverbs with great care. So... The role of a preacher is not just to get up and read a text, explain it, and be done. See, the role of the faithful preacher is that for his audience, for his church, 
to illumine it so the people of God understand it, that it makes sense to them. And if you look at the Old Testament where he says there's many Proverbs, you go to 1 Kings chapter 4, and Solomon talks about the thousands of Proverbs that he's written. And then you go to the Proverbs, and it's the Proverbs of Solomon. You go to Song of Solomon, you come to Ecclesiastes. Many of these are his Proverbs. God gave him wisdom to write these things, but maybe you're saying, well, hold up. Right? You've been talking about what Solomon is writing and what Solomon is doing, but this is the word of God. See, this is what we know about Scripture. We understand that there is a that God is directing, that God is directing Solomon, that his inspired word is directing him to write these things with his personality, with his experience. This is what we see. First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter one helps us out to help us understand the inspiration of Scripture, that surely, first and foremost, God gives us his word, that God directs human authors. Look at this text. This helps us understand how to understand what we would call the dual authorship of Scripture. And don't be scared by that word. It's God's word, but here's how it happens. Peter, in 2 Peter, says it this way. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy or word of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Boy, do we like that. We take Scripture and twist it into all the things we want it to mean that it doesn't mean. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It starts with God. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You notice that all the way through Scripture. That God does that with Moses. He does that with the prophets. In different times, in different ways, Hebrews 1 tells us that long ago, God spoke through the prophets, through the fathers, but finally, he has spoken through Jesus, the Son. And so we understand that God inspires and uses men, women as channels for his word to come to be, his inspired word to come to be, but preaching is teaching the truths of God's word, and also helping hearers understand that it might be illumined. He spends time arranging it in a way that the hearer could understand. That's the job of the preacher. But it means something for the preacher. The biggest question you ought to have for me (laughs) or about me, if you're new, is what's this guy about? Can I trust him? Can I listen to his words? Are his words God's words? There's a preacher a while back that was in the airport and he had his briefcase with him. And the TSA officer was going through security and they asked him what was in his briefcase. And the faithful preacher said this. In my briefcase, there's a plumb line, there's a measuring rod, there's a hammer, There's water, there's a crystal ball, there's a compass, there's a mirror, there's a sword, and there's my birth certificate. And the TSA officer said, there ain't no way all that's in there. And you know where I'm going. He opened his briefcase up, and there was one thing in it, the Bible. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is our due north. Is that how you see the scriptures? Do you see the scriptures as the inspired Word of God. Do you live your life? Here's the harder part. Yes, 
I believe in the inspired word of God. I can recite it all. I can give you the verses. 2 Timothy 3, here's the harder question. Do you live life as best you can in light of the scriptures and what they call us to do, what they call us to be, and how they call us to walk down the path of life? What do you believe about God's word? See, the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word and the putting the word to work, that's wisdom, right, that we've been talking about, matters for your everyday. It matters in the church because in the church, I'll just go there, this pulpit drives our church. What's said in this pulpit drives our church. And that puts me on my knees, especially every Sunday morning. Let the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, Lord. Let not many of you become teachers, James says, because you incur a stricter judgment. It matters what comes out of my mouth. It matters what you believe and what you say and what you think about God's word. And there's many ways in a church, and I'll just apply this in this way. There's many ways and good, faithful ways to preach the Bible and teach the Bible. There's a topical way to do it and to do it well. There's an expositional way where we come to a book of the Bible and we walk through it. And listen, I think it's A, a lot safer, and B, it gives you God's word a lot better that I'm taking God's words and interpreting them and teaching them to you and illuminating them to you that you might know God, not what I think. That's the way we preach here, that we come to Scripture and let Scripture speak. Let scripture speak for itself. That's my job. That's why you hire me. That's why you pay me. All right? My job is to lead the church as a shepherd. It's to care for the sheep, and it's to teach and preach and illumine. And you need to hold me accountable to do that. That's my job. It's really hard when you come to a text like this. You're like, oh, so I have to talk about my job and expose that to everyone, and they can critique. But that's what the text is saying, that the faithful preacher here, Solomon, what do they do? They teach and illumine the truth of God for God's people. So when you think about coming to church on Sunday, you ought to be a Berean who are looking at the text and going, is that what it's saying? When you listen to your podcast, when you listen to people preach and teach the word, you ought to make sure that it lines up, that illumines the truth for you. Well, What's the difference, though, between the inspired word of God and the podcast you listen to and the newspaper you read and the Ben Shapiro's or the Bill Mayer's or the Chris Kirk's or the Jordan Peterson's that you listen to and get some wisdom from? What's different about what man says than what God says or what I think? Keep looking. Look at verse 11 and 12, and there's a sermon in verse 11 and 12, which is code for, I'm going to be here a while. I'm not, all right? But verse 11 and 12, if I could go do this sermon, I might just take a sermon and do this. Verse 11 and 12, look at it. There's so much here. We're going to be all right. Texans are bad. You got a week off. This is awesome. Go with me. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. What in the world is a goad? It's like a cattle prod. If that doesn't help you, I don't know where to go. No. 
It's a goad. So, so remember Psalm 23, where the psalmist, David, talks about his staff and his rod? See, the staff, or his rod, excuse me, is meant to be like the six-foot-long pole to keep the wolves out. That's for, not for the sheep, but for the wolves. And the rod, the staff, the rod, the rod is shorter. It's something different. It's three foot long. And it's meant to take the sheep and prod the sheep with it a little bit when they get out of line. When they are going astray, when they're going outside of the path of the sheep where the wolves are. And so what he's saying here is, Listen, God's people need to be goaded by God's word so that it keeps them along the path of life. You ever have that feeling when you read the Bible and you're like, ooh, that hurt? When you're convicted about something in your life that you need to repent for and confess to because God's word is directing, it's goading you, it's prodding you like God prods, the shepherd prods the sheep and nudging you And it may hurt a little bit. Man, we live in a world where we don't like any hurt and expressive individualism. We don't want to hurt at all. And man, God's word hurts us in a helpful way and prods us and nudges us back toward him and the flock. That's what God's word does. That's one thing God's word does. It prods us back into the fold, back into the right direction. It keeps us on the right path. You think about that when you drive. You ever been driving late at night? I used to do this when I would drive five hours to see Melanie. I lived in Denton, Texas, and she lived in Seguin, and I had this old little Isuzu pickup truck, and I drove late at night to get home or to get there, and I'm halfway falling asleep. And what do you feel when you start drifting over to the right? You feel those rumble strips, contact with the road that helps you do what? Wake up. I'm here, folks, because of rumble strips. And that's what God's word does for us. When we either we've fallen asleep on the job or we're pursuing a different path, it lets us know. Before it to let us know, we have to be in it, don't we? But keep looking. Not only does it prod, check out the next phrase. It's also like nails firmly fixed. This is interesting. Nails firmly fixed. If you have a fixed nail on something, it is secure. It's securing weight. That's what a nail does when it goes through the two by four. It secures something. It tightens it up. This is the way the word of God is. It's interesting, this word is also translated in Hebrew as peg. Interesting twist. A peg in Jewish homes back in this day. If you were to come into a Jewish home, there wasn't a closet where there's a rack where you put your jacket or your stuff. There weren't like the 3M little clips that you can hang in the laundry room or other places. And so you know what they did around their house? They took a nail effectively and they drove it into the wood. And when you came into the house, you could put your coat on it and the weight of that coat would be secure. You could hang it, hang things on the peg. Not only that, in Zechariah chapter 10, this is a beautiful picture. Zechariah chapter 10, God's word describes the coming Messiah, Jesus. 
as the peg, as the one who the people of God could rest their hope, could fix their hope on something secure, the Messiah to come. So here's the question. Are you hanging your life? Are you hanging your life on God's word? Are you hanging it somewhere else? Do you trust it? Do you follow it? Do you let it lead you? And are you hanging your life on the word made flesh who gives you rest, who takes the weight of your sin upon himself that you can have life and security? See, Jesus, if you look at it even a different way, See, Jesus was prodded, he was goaded to the cross by the Jews and the Romans. And he hung on nails that were firmly fixed for you and for me to give us rest from the weight of our sin that sits upon us. This is the good news of the gospel. Do you know that beautiful truth? But you might stop and say, well, all right. Should I really trust the Bible like that? I mean, I know it's your profession to get up and, and preach the word and teach and illumine it. And, but I, I kind of like my own thoughts as well. I have some pretty good thoughts. I like my favorite podcaster. I like other thoughts as well. Is God's word the only source? This is the question that... Many of us have asked, honestly, it's a question of our day. There's all kinds of sources, and I'm the chief source to determine my own truth. Or maybe I'll just go to the shopping market, and I'll just take to the shopping market, that's a hard thing to say, quickly, of ideas, and just go down the aisle and go, I want a little bit of that, like a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So, so how can you say, and how can you have that much trust in the scriptures. Just because Solomon is a wise guy and he's saying so, great. Keep looking. Look at the next phrase. So they're goads, so they're nails, so we teach and illumine. Why? Because they're given by the one shepherd. Do you see it there? The word of God, the wise word of God, isn't from man, not just Solomon. They are given by the one shepherd. See, in the scriptures where you see the idea of shepherd, the one shepherd, there's only a couple of places in the Old Testament you see it. You see it in Psalm 23. The shepherd cares for the sheep, God. The other places in the Old Testament are both in Ezekiel. And the one shepherd points to one person, the Messiah. That's why when you get to John chapter 10, you know where I'm going? John chapter 10, and Jesus speaks up, and the Pharisees, and the scribes, and all the religious leaders of the day are around, and he says, I am. I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. When we read that, we're like, oh, that's beautiful. Jesus is the good shepherd. It connects with the Old Testament. But when the people heard that, they thought, blasphemy. 
Jesus is saying that he is God because only God can be the shepherd. The reason that a faithful preacher preaches and rests their life, the reason a believer trusts in the peg, in the goad, is because it comes from God. One source. It's from him. Do you believe that? It secures It prods, which is your second thought, the shepherd's inspired word. This is beautiful. Prods and secures us to the path of life. I don't know about you, but when I turn on the news, or I get on my app, or I try to do simple things in life, like find the truth about any kind of story, any kind of situation, I doubt Right? I doubt the source. We have so much misinformation, so much fake news, so much misinformation toward buying products. And I just want one news source where I can actually trust that they're just reporting the news. Anybody there? Listen, you can trust God's word because it comes from the source. God himself, he will not mislead you. Like the fake news that you listen to all day, he will not mislead you to believe that product is gonna solve all your problems. He won't mislead you. He's the good shepherd who brings truth, who cares for the sheep. Not only that, look at verse 12. All right, if, if you like books, you got to listen. I know you don't want to listen, but I've avoided it for like 15 weeks to talk about books and we're at the place of books. Look at verse 12. He's going to contrast God's word with books. Sorry, readers. My son, beware. So there's a warning. There's a contrast of anything beyond these words of making many books Where there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. He said this a number of times through the book about books that man has written. Books from the earth that are written about earthly things or even books from man's perspective even about God. And I I don't think he's saying don't read books. He's not saying don't read books. I know the people. My wife's not feeling well today. She'd be looking at me like with those eyes right now. Books are okay. Solomon's not saying don't read books. But there's a warning here. There's a warning here in relation to God's word. Because see, God's word comes from heaven. And it tells you about heaven. And it tells you about earth. From the one source you really need to listen to. And books. Books come from an earthly perspective, even books that I read all the time about God. They're still from earth, talking to us about earth and heaven. Which one do you need more of? So maybe you're in book club, maybe you got goals, those are fine. But I would ask you this, here's the prod, okay, here it is. I would ask you this. Is there a day or a week or a year that goes by where you're not filling your cup with God's word over even the books that you read? 
Here's the challenge. Information's everywhere. This week, I got a laptop, and it's got like 300 gigs on it of just space, and I was downloading the new update for Mac, and it said I didn't have enough space, and I'm confused. I'm pretty sure I had enough space, and so I'm go and look where you can go and look and see where your storage is spent, and accidentally, I had clicked like download every podcast (laughs) that I listened to, and I don't know when that happened, but I had 940 like hour-long podcast downloaded to my laptop, which was like 45 gigs on my laptop. Didn't know it. Unclicked it. We're good. But it got me thinking, like, wow, it's amazing how much content that we can absorb, that we can have, which is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to be able at your fingertips to have that amount of content Perhaps one of the challenges of that, and I would say in my own life, I read a lot of thoughts about what people think about God's word. My reading is mostly commentaries, y'all. All All right, y'all haven't even eaten stuffing yet. And so I read a lot about God's word from humans. But listen, we've got to put it in the right place. And if you need help, and understanding the word, you're like, I just don't understand some of this stuff. I'll give you a great study Bible. I'll give you great resources. But we need to be people in the book. We need to be people of the word to rightly divide it, to know it, to know God, right? So read your books. Not bashing it. Read your books. But meet with God in his word. The shepherd-inspired word prods and secures I'm going to read you this quote by J.I. Packer about God's word, just to encourage you, and maybe to remind you of what God's word is for us. God's word is supernatural in origin, it's eternal in duration, it's inexpressible in value, it's infinite in scope, it's divine in authorship, it's regenerative in power, it's infallible in authority, it's universal in interest, it's personal in application, it is inspired in totality. Read it through, write it down, pray it in, work it out, pass it on. It's the word of God. All right, off my soapbox. This is important. Well, God's word certainly prods us down a path of life. It certainly is the peg that secures us. But do we just learn it? What do we do with it? See, God's word is like that rudder. But the rudder is sending us somewhere, isn't it? It's a tool to send us somewhere. Where is it sending us? Here's the close for Solomon. The last two verses. Here's your thought. When it's all said and done, right? When it's all said and done, The aim and delight of our life and the aim and the purpose of the rudder of God's word is to help us know and follow God. To know him. To know him personally. And to follow him. That's the end of the matter. This is where he's going. Saying this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. He's walked through it all. He said labor isn't enough. It's not going to satisfy you. 
Learning isn't enough. It's not going to satisfy you. Possessions, I got them all. Solomon, remember the pools. He played Sims for real. Y'all laugh more the last day than you did the three other times that I said that's awesome. <laughs> Possessions, pleasure, all his wives. And he said, nope, doesn't satisfy. Doesn't do it for me. All's been heard. It's all vanity. But a number of times he does this, what he's going to do right here. He points. All's been heard. Here's the end of the matter. Here's the whole duty of man. Here's the purpose of man. Here's the aim of man. He says, fear God. What is fearing God? It's reverence. It's dependence. It's humility. It's a reliance on him. It's bowing toward him. It's knowing him. That's if you want to put fear of God in its place, it's knowing him properly. Fearing God, keeping his commandments, that's obedience, that's yielding, that's doing, that's acting, that's simply following. So the aim and delight of life is to know God. That's what the word of God points you toward. The word of God is not an end in of itself. It points you to the person of God and the work of Christ. That we delight there. That we know him and that we follow him. It's interesting if you look, read the, the great Commission, we all know it, make disciples. Do you know what it says? How do we do that? Teaching them to do what? Obey. I know that's like a bad word, obedience or something. Teaching them to obey, that's the point. Because our obedience, 1 John says, tells us that we really love. We really love Christ. Why? Because there's judgment coming even the secret things that we do in secret will be exposed. God knows. He's just. He's all-knowing. I grew up in a little Baptist church, and we sang this hymn called, went like this, Trust and Obey. Know that one? For there's no other way to be what? Happy. To enjoy. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Westminster Confession, maybe you're not Baptist, maybe you're Presbyterian. Westminster Confession, purpose of life, know God, enjoy him forever. That's what Solomon's saying right here. Let me ask you a question. For you foodies in the room, if you spent a month with Gordon Ramsay and, his, and he was on his best behavior, he wasn't yelling at you, and you had a month just to learn from him how to cook, and you came home, what are you going to cook? Would you break out the box mac and cheese and cook that every day if you just got taught and learned from one of the best? No. If you got a lesson from Tiger Woods, golfer, I don't remember. Just go there. And he said, hey, you're playing in a pro-am with him at a tournament? And he said, hey, here's what you need to do on your backswing. You need to do that a little differently. And you go home and you go, don't like it that way. He didn't know what he's talking about. Not going to do that. You spend a little time with Dave Ramsey because you needed some financial help. And figure out how to get out of debt. 
And you spent weeks and a lot of money learning how to manage your money. And you went back home and said, no, I'm not really going to do that. I'm going to keep doing it this way. I'm going to keep getting in credit card debt. So here's a question. The God of the universe who's created you, who is good and who is wise. He's given you wisdom from his word. He's even given you a human being who he says was the wisest guy on the planet. Also a guy with experience in doing it right and doing it wrong. (laughs) And he's saying to us, here's the end of the matter. It's what you got to do. You got to use the rudder of God's word. And it gives us the ability to know him and to follow him. Would you do it? The same thought. We got to obey. We got to follow him. What we tend to do is we tend to live life in these compartments, don't we? I do. Okay, how's my marriage? How are my kids? How's job? Uh, How's finances? How are all these things? And, And there's a right place to compartmentalize things and evaluate things that way. How am I doing? How's my integrity? How's et cetera, et cetera. What if life is a bit more simple than that that affects all those areas of life that Solomon's been teaching us and talking to us about? That the wellspring of life in every compartment of your life flows out of knowing and following your God. The word teaches and illumines. The word prods and secures. The word directs us to follow God. You know, as I began this morning, I gave you the example of this ship, the Bismarck. The terror of the sea who became the mercy, who came to the mercy of the sea because it lost its rudder. And when I think about the book, the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes, I think about how we often do life in our own strength under the sun in a broken world like a ship without a rudder. Or maybe we just turned it off. And no matter how strong or powerful or successful or self-made or knowledgeable or known we are, we are at the mercy left to ourselves of the sea if we're trying to do life on our own. You see, God's word is the impenetrable rudder that takes us to the mercy, not of the sea, but to the mercy of the sun. Catch that. The sun, who's the good shepherd, who's laid down his life for the sheep. Here's what the Bible says about that. In him, in Christ, was life. And the life became the light of men. He who has the Son, 1 John says, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Do you know him? Do you know the Son, the all-powerful, all-wise Son who's given his life on a cross And his nail-pierced hands, prodded by the people so that you can have life eternal and life now. So your takeaway 
really for the whole book of Ecclesiastes, is really what we started with. It's this. Life in the sun gives meaning to life under the sun. Let me pray.